Hi, James Evans here, Associate Director at Bell Shakespeare, Australia's national Shakespeare theatre company. I am thrilled to be launching a brand new season of our Speak the Speech podcast. We have a stellar lineup of guests for you this year, including Shakespeare actors, directors, and thinkers from Australia and overseas. Hope you enjoy. This is Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. Bell Shakespeare would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded and produced on the lands of the Gadigal and Wangal people of the Eora Nation and the Wajak Nyungar people, the traditional custodians of the land, and we pay our respects to their elders, past and present. Speak the speech, I pray you as I pronounced it to you, trippingly on the tongue. But if you mouth it, as many of your players do, I had as lief the town crier spoke my lines. Nor do not saw the air too much with your hand thus, but use all gently, for in the very torrent, tempest, and, as I may say, the whirlwind of passion, you must acquire and beget a temperance that may give it smoothness. Oh, it offends me to the soul to hear a robustuous, periwig-pated fellow tear a passion to tatters, to very rags, to split the ears of the groundlings, who, for the most part, are capable of nothing but inexplicable dumb shows and noise. Pray you, avoid it. Be not too tame neither, but let your own discretion be your tutor. Suit the action to the word, and the word to the action. With this special observance that you o'erstep not the modesty of nature. For anything so overdone is from the purpose of playing whose end, both at the first and now, was and is, to hold as twere the mirror up to nature, to show virtue her own feature, scorn her own image, and the very age and body of the time, his form and pressure. And let those that play your clowns speak no more than is set down for them. For there be of them that will themselves laugh to set on some quantity of barren spectators to laugh too, though in the meantime some necessary question of the play be then to be considered. That's villainous, and shows a most pitiful ambition in the fool that uses it. Go, make you ready. Welcome to the second season of Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. I'm your host, James Evans, and that was Act 3, Scene 2 of Hamlet, read by our guest this week. He is a multi-award winning writer, comic actor and director. His TV writing credits include The Young Ones, Blackadder, The Thin Blue Line and Upstart Crow. He's had 16 novels published since 1989 and written West End plays and musicals, including We Will Rock You, Love Never Dies, and a stage adaptation of Upstart Crow, which opened in London in 2020. It is my great pleasure to welcome Ben Elton. Ben, welcome to Speak the Speech. Ah, very nice to be here. My first podcast. Oh, brilliant. Great to have you, Ben. And finally, the speech from which our podcast gets its title. It took Ben Elton to suggest it. Ben, why do you love this speech so much? Uh, well, uh, no question. It's because it's a writer's speech. Um, mm. Shakespeare obviously communicates pretty directly to to all contemporary listeners that's what's so famous about shakespeare he remains ever relevant and his sort of his his ability to articulate uh mm. the, the 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 angsts and uh, delights etc of, of 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 the modern soul is not surprising that different from him and doing it in his own day but very specifically the the speech i just did is is a writer talking about his frustrations with actors. <laughs> and so yeah. Um, yeah. there's nothing abstract or um, airy-fairy about my complete uh, sympathy and equation with that speech. <laughs> I mean, I love actors. I've worked with many, many hundreds. I don't think I've ever met one I didn't enjoy. Actors are normally paid very, very little. They do it for love. They devote their mm. lives mm. to something which only rarely bears the, the massive fruit all actors hope for, of course, which is, you know, great success. And and when it does, it's normally a very double-edged sword. So I have nothing but love for actors. I think um, 
theatre people in general are wonderful, but as a writer, <laughs> I do have some niggles with actors who bring their egos to the table just as writers do. Especially uh, comedic actors, and I'm sure Shakespeare had his problems with, you know, Will Kemp in particular, who played Dogbury uh, in Much Ado. And I imagine that uh, this, I, I just imagine this speech comes after uh, Kemp played Dogbury in Much Ado, and, and I'm sure Shakespeare got very frustrated with him upstaging and and uh, prancing around and, and making the audience laugh when he shouldn't. Well, uh, do you think that's where this comes from? Yeah, I, I, I imagine um, not just, I'm sure Kemp played many roles. We know he played Dogbury. I mean, he was the most famous ca- uh, clown of his age. Um, Mm. And, but it's more general. I mean, I, I tried to give a little bit of extra to and 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 talking to the clowns, you know, <laughs> don't overdo it. Um, yeah. I, I I think the whole speech is is it, it, yes, it, particularly with comic acting. I'm a comic writer. The um, the 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 way actors sometimes will. I mean, he he spots exactly what modern modern comics are sometimes prone to do when he says, you know, yeah. don't play a dumb laugh and just to get get the idiots in the audience to laugh. I mean, how yeah. many times have we all sat in an audience thinking, oh, come on, you know, of course you're <laughs> going to get a laugh doing that. But it's not a mm. real laugh. It's not an honest laugh. It takes us yeah. out of the play. And I just mm. love to hear Shakespeare specifically say, if you mm. do that, if you make that pratfall, if you, if, literally, as he said, if you just do a big laugh and get yeah. a Pavlovian echo from the, from the, the less dis or shall we say the simply embarrassed in the audience, then, oh, <laughs> oh, hang on, some of the play uh, may have just been missed, you know, some yes. of the important stuff that's going on inside the writing. I mm. mean, the speech itself opens with a speech to speak the speech as it is writ. Mm. And, I mean, mm. how many writers listen? I don't know how many writers are listening, but I imagine there may be one or two. And you mm. will have the experience of an actor saying to you, entirely without shame or any understanding that you might, oh, look, I, I, I'm just going to mess yeah. around with it a bit. I mean, look, you know, I like to kind of make it my own, you know. Have you had that? Have you uh, had oh, that yes, of course. I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm a really, I've been around a long time, 40 years in the business, so sure. I've had a lot of that. Um, mm. And, of course, you know, once you get to a slightly more elevated position, perhaps actors don't do it quite so brazenly. Mm. Um, yes. But you'll find in Upstart Crow I quite often will drop in, you know, an actor saying, oh, well, that, that, that bit, that bit was <laughs> mine. Right. I'd, I'd, that was my idea. You know, but the fact yeah. that, you know, the character has, has given forth an extra grunt. Oh, that grunt was mine. Um, look, I don't... <laughs> <laughs> there'll be lots of actors listening too. And and uh, you said at the, your intro, I'm I'm an actor. I'm not really an actor. I've done a little bit of acting and we perhaps talk mm. about that. And We will. Me and Ken Branner in, uh, Branner in Much Ado because it shows oh, how yeah. little an actor I am. But <laughs> I, I really do... I do get it, but it is very frustrating as a writer. Uh, mm, and it mm. leads, I think, sometimes to some very bad art. In Hollywood, there's a famous story. That, what I'm talking about is the idea that the writing is somehow just a tool, a kind of thing yes. that the actors can go and it's run with. It's a suggestion. The, di- yeah. the director mm. can mess around with. The cult of the director mm. is another thing I'd be very happy to talk about, which I find yeah. deeply anti-quality in theatre and film, the idea that one auteur is the single auteur, vision. Yes. Um, but uh, as a writer in Hollywood, there's a famous story that Jack Nicholson is on set, introduced the producer and has a lovely little chat, and then introduced the director and has a lovely little track. Then he's introduced the the writer, and he says, "I take cream and two sugars." So, <laughs> yeah. it, 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 and of course, that leads to. How often have you come out of a cinema thinking, oh, my God, they spent $100 million and they forgot to get a script, a story, yeah, well, a that's coherent... Right. Yeah. So, yes, mm-hmm. I, I mm-hmm. mean, to hear Shakespeare after mm-hmm. 400... It's a very long answer, but, gosh, it means a lot to me. To mm-hmm. hear him echoing that, the endless tensions, jolly tensions, fun tensions, but heartfelt tensions between writer and actor is yeah. very personal for me. And uh, and what about this idea that the purpose of playing is to hold the mirror up to nature, to reflect our world and our society? I mean, that seems like a very modern thought that, that suddenly pops up here in this speech. Uh, I'm not so sure. I think it might be a, a, a thought that I could do well with a revival. Right. I think what do you there's, think? there's often too much willful imposition of... Of, of oh the last thing we want to do is the obvious I mean I, look you know Hamlet's a very depressed person so I'm not going to play him depressed you know there mm. there is mm. a, a feeling that and particularly with Shakespeare that the wheel needs constant reinvention and that can at times produce you know absolutely magnificent work but sometimes it it can lead uh, in all forms of theatre and film to a 
a, a willful disregarding of what's obvious on the page. Like, I don't want to do just what the writer or the what's clearly there, because then what do I bring to it? Um, mm-hmm. And so what I think he's saying with Hold the Mirror Up to Nature is naturalism. And right. whilst I don't always think an, a naturalistic approach is the way to go, and I'm nor, nor is Shakespeare suggesting that, because everything in Shakespeare's theatre was was done with a, with, a, with a massive amount of theatricality. They had no sense. Mm. They had no, mm. no chance of naturalism yeah. beyond the ability of the actor. Um, I think it was probably very modern then. Um, yes. If you yes. think theatre prior to Shakespeare, um, you know, starting with the Greeks, very pantomimic, the use of masks a lot. I'd sure. say that's a very mm-hmm. Western approach. Uh, I, I'm quite obviously there are many, many traditions of theatre in, uh, uh, but you know, dance and dumb show. Um, mm. The of course Western theatre a lot. You know, survived in the churches with the mm. ritual, yep. all of which is certainly not holding the mirror up to nature. Um, mm. And then you look at the theatre immediately prior to Shakespeare, you know, the the, the world of, of, of um, incomes, either turkey, snout, you know, the world of um, of the uh, the mummers and the, the, the players doing these almost pantomimic yes, um, yes. bits of propaganda. Mm. Yeah, I, I actually think it was modern then. I think it must have been a startling idea for some, yes, somebody to for suddenly sure. say, hey, let's, mm. let's stop doing this sort of endless panto and ritualistic... Mm, and suit the word to the action. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Show, uh, do rather than show. Talking about theatricality and, and naturalism, we should talk about Not To Do About Nothing in your performance in that film because, <laughs> because um, you know, it is unusual for, for an otherwise naturalistic film the way that you played Verges to Michael Keaton's uh, Dolbury and you came up with a very theatrical solution to those two characters pretending to ride a horse doing the clip-clop sounds. I mean, how, how did that come about within that kind of naturalistic world of film? I think, that, I think it was Michael and I with Ken just sort of discussed it. And I mean, obviously, we weren't the first. I mean, it was a direct ripoff of, of the Holy Grail, you know, Python. Sure, the, sure. Uh, yeah. uh, mm. the, the, the horseshoe um, using coconut shells. But um, I mean, they were very surreal, the Pythons. Yes, exactly. Um, mm. <laughs> I, I, I brought it this up earlier only because I felt I was being a bit mean to actors and I wanted to make it clear <laughs> that uh, I understand how hard it is and, and I'm mm. not very good at it because I always tend to overact. I always tend to do exactly what Shakespeare's asking you not to do short. <laughs> Saw the air, uh, uh, air with your arms, um, <laughs> speak too loudly, try too hard. My only right. um, my mitigation in terms of my character is that I'm not doing it in trying to show off or draw attention or upstage. I'm doing it because mm. my instincts are naturally not very good. I mean, I, I, I think I can act a little bit if, you know, if I really get it right and, and get some good direction but left to myself I overact and there's a good there's a good story that um uh that happened on the set when Ken was directing and it was a set scene I can't remember which where we seem to all be around uh mm. Dogby and Verges so there's me and Michael Ken's incredible cast I mean I'm one mm. of the lesser known by a long shot so there's there's Denzel Washington Keanu Reeves and Emma Thompson Richard Price mm. And Ken rushes from behind the camera and he, he has a little whisper, an intense whisper with with um, Denzel and we're all, you know, terribly, you know, um, doing the right thing and standing back and not listening sure. and being terribly yeah. respectful as two great artists have this private <laughs> conflab. Oh, if only we could hear what they're saying, this marvellous <laughs> stuff. And then he, he, he darts over to Carney and has a little whisper and, a, and they both have an intense conversation. Then Emma and, and the director moves from one actor to another and no doubt many, many extraordinary thoughts were exchanged. And then he's walking back towards the camera and he passes me and he turns back and he simply says puts his finger in my face and says don't act <laughs> and that was the only only direction uh, he gave me and, and and that's why I perhaps shouldn't be a, an actor I, I I think it was a very good lesson I sort of knew it anyway but I find it very hard my face my wife says your body language is all you know they people in the theatre, she's always nudging me. If I don't like a play, she says, God, you know, you're just making it so obvious. When I yeah, think right, I'm sitting right. quietly. Um, yes, yes, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> in, in terms of the the, pandem- the, the the big comic style that Michael and I did, me particularly, mm. um, 
I think was more a result of it's the only thing I could do. And okay. I think in very small doses like Verges, I think I had about six lines. I think it's probably mm. okay. But if you, you wouldn't want to have to sit through a whole play of that. <laughs> Shakespeare and Shakespeare's language for you seems to be, you seem to be steeped in it. Every, every, every time you come to write, for example, when, when you started writing Blackadder, you can see the story definitely takes a decidedly Shakespearean turn. Um, and there are certain lines that, that, that I know that you're fixated on. Like, for example, in the first episode of um, Upstart Crow, uh, Wherefore Art Thou, Romeo? The, the most misunderstood uh, <laughs> line in all of Shakespeare. Now tell me your beef with this line, please. Oh well, I mean, it's not—it's not—it's not my own. It's one shared by anybody who understands it, and every actor, of course, everybody knows that. Um, and everybody who, who who looks into it knows that he's not saying, "Where are you, Romeo?" She's not saying, "Where are you, Romeo?" She's saying, "Why are you, Romeo? Why mm. are you a member of a family that I I'm not allowed to love?" Yes, um, but beyond yeah, that, beyond you're that, of with course, this line. <laughs> yeah. But my one of the bits of. Uh, uh, fun I've had with with Upstart Crow, and I hope some of your listeners will know the the piece is that, I mean Shakespeare was not perfect. This this is mm. a massive mistake people make by thinking that everything he wrote must have been unutterably, unassailably perfect. Sure, it's simply yeah. not. It couldn't. It's not possible. Einstein wasn't perfect as a scientist and and uh, f- f- physical philosopher, and nor nor was Shakespeare as, as an artist. He was merely very, very, very good. And mm. here's an example with this: Wherefore art thou, Romeo? Of course, logic breaks down immediately because Romeo is his first name, uh, yeah. and the issue is with their surnames. It's the families, the Montagues and the Capulets. He, and she mm. should have said, "Wherefore art thou? You know, why are you know Montague? Why are you a yeah. Montague? Wherefore art thou, mm. Montague?" You. And of course, I said no. That would sound like she's lost her cat. Lost her cat. Um, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and I, I throughout Upstart Crow, I have a lot of fun doing what I think needs to be done in a way, which is whilst clearly acknowledging the genius, also acknowledging the fact that this. This mythical cult that's built up around Shakespeare. I, the speech I cut from the current play that's just well, we got we got yeah it's not running in London. We got nominated for an Olivia one night and closed the next night by mm, coronavirus. Yeah. But yeah, small yeah. problem compared to what many people have had to go through. Um, a speech I cut, which was I, I, I'm definitely going to put in if we ever get and do another series, is is this idea that Shakespeare musing on the fact that he's he's come to recognise that. People are beginning to think everything he writes is brilliant, and that's mm. that. That means you know that he says, but surely the pen is going to drop one of these days. He, he said, I can't believe that that you know for hundreds of years hence, um, theatre comes is still going to be putting on cluster futtocks like <laughs> like two gentlemen and Verona simply sure. because they're written by the same bloke that wrote Hamlet, and yeah, and yeah. I I feel that very strongly because there are some <laughs> really awful. I mean, to me, anyway, oh, awful writing. No dr- doubt. Beyond Rocky, dreadful yeah. plotting. And, mm. you know, I mean, the uh, taming of the true, you know, and he, he muses on beginning to ask himself whether a three-page monologue describing a servant falling off a horse could ever be as funny <laughs> as a servant actually falling off a horse. You know, it, it's... Right. It, yeah, I, I, <laughs> my respect for Shakespeare is, temp- is in a, not just tempered by, but is, I think, proven mm. in that I kind of take the trouble to find out the why I respect him, which which doesn't yeah. mean thinking every syllable he wrote was 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 unassailably was brilliant. No, yeah. no, of course, and and uh, and you very much portray him in that, and in um, all is true, which we'll, we'll talk about as well, as a human being, as a mm. human being with flaws, and a very hardworking artist, uh, perhaps who neglected some other parts of his life, but as, as a person. But uh, what I really love about that first episode of Upstart Crow is that uh, he. That his family tells him, look, mate, comedy is not your strong point. <laughs> and he says, no, 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 it, you know, it just requires a lengthy explanation, copious footnotes, and if you do your research, actually, you'll find that I'm really funny. So, so Ben, is Shakespeare still funny? I think what's the best comedy that survives in Shakespeare is clearly not the puns, which, are, you know, require, require research and footnotes. And, mm. and when he's being overly funny, you know, the... The, the the doorkeeper in Macbeth or whatever. Um, mm. <laughs> it's in, for instance, in Much Ado, the the sparring between Beatrice and Benedict. You know, there is such understanding of two lovers who clearly, you know, really yeah. ought to be in bed, but instead of fighting, you know, they're they're replacing mm. their 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 love for with anger. Um, mm. Yes, I think he still is incredibly funny in terms of his 
exposure of human foible, um, yeah. littleness, pettiness, vanity, self-deception. So, yes, he's still very, very funny. And in the hands of, of really good actors, he can remain as as urgently comedic as he was in his day. I remember when I first realised that. I, I had, you know, the usual school relationship, well, a very common school relationship with mm. Shakespeare, despite, you know, some good teachers, in which it just it was just boring. It was just right. a chore. I mean, yeah. you know, a bunch of 14-year-olds reading Henry V out in class is oh, a pointless yeah. exercise. Um, so I was, I was cold to it, really. Mm. Um, and I had a bit of a sort of Damascus road to Damascus moment when I went and saw Judy Dench's production of Much Ado with Ken and Emma Thompson yep. as Beatrice mm -hmm. and Benedict. And I thought I thought they'd cheated. I thought they'd modernised some of this dialogue. I mean, oh, it, it, yeah. it sounded mm. like friends. It really mm. did. The, the, the <laughs> banter was so fabulously natural and so yeah. astute in, like, you know, pricking each other's little bits and pomposities. Um, mm. And I said to Ken afterwards, who I scarcely knew then, we've since become very close friends over many years, but I said, you know, you you, you obviously, you must have cheated, shouldn't you have credited that? And he took mm. me through the text. And of course, every word was Shakespeare. So yes, mm. Shakespeare absolutely can still be funny with very good actors, but it's harder and harder. And on the whole, I would cut, when he's trying to be like, you know, really do a joke, a pun or yes. whatever, on the whole, yeah. if I was a director, which I've never directed Shakespeare and never would, but I'd probably cut a lot of it. Right, um, right. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult. I mean, you know, I have a big, you know, the famous cross garters. I mean, you know, I do yeah. a thing about, <laughs> you know, basically Kate saying, you know, do you realise, you know, this, this has been such a hit that for hundreds of years now, audiences are going to be pretending to laugh because we all know he's going to walk yeah. on in his yellow stockings because you've yeah. said it in the previous act. We've been waiting for it. Oh, here he is. <laughs> and every poor stage designer and actor ever since has had to try and think of an original way of doing it. And we all, yeah. you know, frankly, I think there's a lot of pretending, you know, and I saw, you know, Stephen, my my friend Stephen coming in, you know, Rylance doing that all male thing. I, you know, we're all going, yeah, oh, how much? But the truth is, come on, you know, <laughs> it's not funny anymore. <laughs> uh, but maybe there'll be a lot of your listeners absolutely howling and saying they think it absolutely is. So fair enough. Um, no, but no, I, but uh, obviously judicious cuts are required. And, I mean, and you couldn't I think cut it, that, but. Uh, you know. Well, no, but but, uh, but to, to some of the jokes, and yeah. uh, you know, I think the list our listeners need to know that even mm. Shakespeare in his own time would have cut, would have edited. Yeah, there's no way there was a four-hour Hamlet in Shakespeare's own time, mm. uh, let alone any other plays. So, mm. so I think cutting, and certainly if you look at uh, Branagh's film of Much Ado, you know, only about mm. you know, two-thirds of the text still survives. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think that's absolutely fine to get it to the heart of the play. Be okay. done with great care, but yeah, I mean, you can. I think you can take a third out. You know. Yeah, look, you know, is that sacrilege? No, I mean, no, it's no. it just depends and on how it's done. And mm. and I, I would say Shakespeare's comic genius remains in his understanding of, of human nature, but, mm. you know, when he's actually cracking a gag, you've got to take a lot of care. You're listening to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. My guest today is Ben Elton. Now, Ben... You mentioned uh, your schoolboy experience, Henry V, sitting around the classroom, and a lot of the work we do at Bell Shakespeare is actually about uh, reinvigorating teachers' teaching of Shakespeare, getting the kids up on their feet. Did you ever have any of those positive experiences performing Shakespeare as a young child? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I, I, um, and as I say, on the whole, I, I have a lot of sympathy for the teachers. You know, they're stuck with a curriculum. Uh, this was mm. the 1970s. There was only a certain amount of uh, tools at their disposal to make it vibrant. And yes, yeah. there's an awful lot of uh, there's an awful lot of shame in the fact that, that kids are alienated from Shakespeare through no fault of anybody's, but just an excess of effort. You know, don't don't start with the Tempest. I mean, I I mean, goodness, I right, can remember right. it. At sixteen, we were looking at the Tempest. Maybe sixteen year old. Certainly, I wasn't capable of of of, of any kind of penetration of its of its depth you know sure, just, sure. there's a reason for starting mm. with Romeo and Juliet because you know you can equate to it anyway yeah. sorry I'm I'm waffling you asked me about good experiences I was very lucky to um encounter a visionary educator a man mm. called Gordon Valens I was able to uh, uh tribute him uh, in in Britain something that he it was very special for me and I, and I hope for him. When I was 15, 14, 15, I knew I wanted to write for the theatre. I thought perhaps I wanted to act, but I already knew I wanted to write. 
and I mm. was champing at the bit. I wanted to leave school at O level, which was the 16-year-old um, right. level in Britain, uh, which was legal. I wanted to leave immediately, and my parents very much wanted me to stay in education because I had these romantic ideas. I'd knock on the door of the local theatre, not realising it would be closed within five years like all the other local theatres. But, mm. you know, this was the end of rep. I was thinking I could go in and sweep floors and they'd put my plays on. Um, and my parents were able to persuade me to stay in education by because they happened on an article in The Guardian mm. about a, a, a tech, a tech college, a TAFE, um, right. which... A visionary educator had managed to persuade a visionary principal to somehow open a department of drama and liberal arts. Now, this was in the mid-70s. Mm. Uh, the college mainly had a catering course and an engineering course. And then there was this little enclave in the corner where there was a black box studio. And that's where this bloke, Gordon, had dis had managed to establish the idea that theatre, A, was, was worthy of being a subject for education in itself, theatre studies, plays, dramaturgy, directing, stagecraft, etc., but also that it was relevant to all education. He believed strongly that a sort of knowledge and a feel for theatre would help in your understanding of politics and history and, gosh knows, even perhaps science and geography, who knows? Sure. But he felt mm. theatre was... A, a life force and mm. uh, I was able to get on to this course I left home when I was 16 it was just as I say it was just a tech college I mean mm. uh, just an ordinary A-level I lived in a caravan and uh, on, on a farm and he we did, I did English and history and theatre studies and one of the times Gordon was teaching us and we were we were looking at Lear which was a A-level set text that year yeah. um, very complicated I wouldn't I, again, even 18-year-olds, but yeah, anyway, we were doing Lear. And I just remember this experience when we were doing, you know, the start of the second half or whatever, and it was a thunderstorm, by, mm. as, as luck would have it, and Gordon had us all running out into the, in, oh, onto the, onto the quad <laughs> and doing blow winds and crack your cheeks in this, oh, yeah. this massive uh, rain and wind, and it was a very invigorating experience, just Fantastic. this idea of bellowing, you know, mm. uh, this fabulous description of a storm. Mm. whilst actually in a storm. He was very big on street theatre. He was always lugging us into shopping precincts to give some <laughs> some bit of pantomime. Um, and, yeah. uh, and, and that was a particularly special moment of, of just connecting with Shakespeare. He obviously sat at home trying to describe a storm. And when you've actually done that speech in a storm, you realise just how good his leap of the imagination wow. was. Wow, that that is a brilliant piece of teaching. I mean, mm. that's obviously that stayed with you all these years. Yeah, it and, was good fun. <laughs> and yeah, and, illuminating. and then when you when you went to um, you know after school and after your studies, how how did because as I say, Shakespeare seems to kind of ring through your work even when you go back to Blackadder. What mm. why is that? I think if you see resonance of anything Shakespearean in 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 much of my work prior to Upstart Crow and All is True. I mm. think that's just because Shakespeare is is lit, is part of the English language. Of course he wrote large sections of it, something yep. I have a lot of fun with in Upstart Crow. And mm. I think, you know, my mother's an English literature teacher, my father actually an immigrant from Germany, but like many uh, Germ people educated in Germany, but they're unser Shakespeare. Like he's mm. he's very big over there. They say he's our Shakespeare because sure, Germans sure. sometimes claim to understand him better than we do, and perhaps many times they have done. Um, so it's, it's a lot of quotes in my family. Um, I kind mm. of knew Shakespeare quotes before knowing they were Shakespeare, like everybody, because of course we all know that we're all quoting Shakespeare every day. Um, but I, I, I think I've got to fess up in that I wasn't really aware of either a particular love for Shakespeare or being particularly influenced by him right. for most of my professional life. I, I Of course I knew he was the great, and I was only about 26, I think, when I had that experience with um, uh, Branagh and, 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 and Thompson in, the, in Judy Dench's production. But... I, I, he's, he, I've gone alongside a knowledge of Shakespeare most of my life. I've known a bit. I've seen a fair few shows, mm. I, uh, productions, and I've always obviously recognised the greatest genius in English letters. Mm. But as to feeling personally associated, it was really only when I started to look deeply into him, when the BBC approached me, probably because of Blackadder, when Shakespeare's 400 was coming up. Um, yeah. The BBC asked me if I would like to try and do something comedic around Shakespeare in oh, some yeah. sense or other, yeah. um, which was an incredible break for me. I hadn't expected such a such a gift so late in my career. I already mm. had a 
quite a few sitcoms on the BBC, and I didn't expect to be didn't offer me the show, but they said, can you think about it? And if you've got some ideas, we'd love to hear them. Yes, yes. And it was yes. through looking at his life, mm. trying to figure out what best to do with him comedically and very quickly thinking he is the classic British sitcom character. This <laughs> lower middle class arrivist kicking against the shits of English snobbery. Yes, the moment yes. I began to even just just a Wikipedia page, let alone any greater depth than that, and I did do a lot of reading, mm. um, you you uncover this, you know, this almost Captain Mannering, Basil Fawlty, in, in as much <laughs> as he's clearly having to deal all the time with posh boys who he, who he at the same time not only resents but also wants to join. Mm. You know, the simplest mm. facts of Shakespeare's life, of which we have many, this myth that little is known about William Shakespeare. We know more right. about William Shakespeare, factually proven fact, than about any other uh, artist mm. of the English Renaissance. Of his contemporaries, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah. And, you know, the moment you realise that he bought himself a coat of arms uh, mm. to, mm. to, to mm. give his father the name of gentleman, his father who, as we know, fact, was both dodgy was twice, was a very dodgy geezer indeed. <laughs> His mother was a posh girl at the un, at the wrong end of a family who married beneath her. Yes, and and of course you know this guy who managed to become mayor of Stratford before spectacularly uh, being disgraced. I mean, almost a sort of mini Trumpian figure in that you know suddenly it all caught up with him and right. and Shakespeare's drummed out of school at fourteen. Um, the the, f the moment I, the penny dropped for me, for instance, another startling fact, which is there if anybody wants to see it, is that Shakespeare was the only poet of his age who didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, imagine that the grip that those two institutions had on arts and media was as strong then as mm -hmm. it is 400 years later. Mm -hmm. It's an astonishing... Um, snapshot of yeah. of England and and what remains the English class system which which has been broken many times you know there was a glorious period you know led by the Beatles when we really thought it was over mm. um, and of course it it, it wasn't um, and now two out of the last three British prime ministers went to the same school this idea of class tension, entitlement, it, it rings all the way through Upstart Crow and all the posh boys, but it's in All Is True as well. All Is True, your film about the last three years of Shakespeare's life, him returning to Stratford, it, it, that, that sense of wanting to be accepted by the upper classes, buying the coat of arms, uh, you know, and it's interesting that he's his motto on the coat of arms was not without right, um, which, which seems like a strangely defensive motto, which was parodied then by Ben Johnson, who had a kind of social climbing um, bloke uh, with a motto they suggested should be not without mustard mm. um, from his play Every Man Out of His Humour. So so is that not still a... a, a, a um, a preoccupation in Britain. It seems I to think, me, just watching this, that it really is. Well, I mean, over same. It's the same in Australia. Australia prides itself for being so classless. Is that you know everyone gets a fair go? It's, interestingly, I was doing a routine, trying to write some new material for my Australian tour, which is coming up sometime when the borders, you know, etc. Mm. Uh, and it's interesting, you know, this whole business about we Aussies and quintessentially Australian mateship and fair go. Right. Of course, nobody nobody makes friends in Belgium. And and as for uh, fair go, we're actually number 16 in um, mm, the World world uh, Trade, um, the, the, the World Economic Forum's uh, index of social mobility. Uh, there's yes. 15 countries uh, with, with a fair go than us. Anyway, I just hasten to add that mm. I don't think it's entirely British, an idea where people feel resentful that they're not given that famous fair go. But mm. with Shakespeare, yes, in All Is True, I, I, I think it's the key to the man. I, I've been in the arts as a writer all my life, and of course right. I, along with every other writer in the English language, is not the match of Shakespeare, although some have come close, not me. Um, but I understand the frustrations and, 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 and the inspirations of being a writer, and I absolutely, personally, perhaps arrogantly and perhaps, um, you know, uh, presumptuously feel that means I have some understanding of Shakespeare. Yeah. And to me, it is, it is self-evident self that his, the snobbery of, and it's not just a British thing, the snobbery of letters, the, the, the idea that somehow um, 
somehow there's a sort of clever world which is a little bit better than the real you know it's funny to see shakespeare talking about the the the, the groundlings who who will laugh at anything but i think yeah. he actually had a lot of sympathy for them as 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 i do because i'm one of them <laughs> at times but when i say not at anything but right let's laugh at something which is funny um yes. as opposed to something which is pretending to be funny we won't get on to pinter but i am I am no fan of Pinter, and, I, and I, right. let's not go there, but I, mm -hmm. I believe there is a, a corrosive snobbery, perhaps the only link of truth in the modern trope, the right-wing trope, that there's some left-wing elitist latte-drinking elite who, mm. who ignore the dreams and aspirations and honest values of real people. Now, clearly, this is a Trumpian Brexit-driven trope, sure. which is sure. not the case. But I think in the arts, there is that case, and I think... With Shakespeare, from the first day, he sort of uh, he sort of encountered it. Look at Green's initial Green's famous quote. You the, know, the Robert Green. Yes, yes mm. called him the pamphlet where he called him an upstart, an upstart, mm. and yes. said that he wanted to cloak himself in the feathers of a gentleman. Yes. yes. Now that mm. clearly stung. This is a man who only ten years later actually paid to become a gentleman to cloak yeah. himself in those feathers and put that. Mm. That slogan, that motto, not without right, I deserve this, mm. my father deserves this, put it above his own door. Clearly there's a rankling going on there. This this lower middle class Arevis, this aspirational man, conservative I'm sure, politically, not, not deeply, but certainly fiscally, um, here's a man who invested in property all his life and was resented for it and continues to be resented for it. The mm. whole basis of the myth of Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare is that, that he was too ordinary in his right. life to mm. have ever been so splendid as he was in his work. And I, yeah. I find this deeply objectionable and entirely snobbish. Right the, from the, the first The denial day, of genius. Yeah. The denial yeah. of genius because somehow he didn't fit the bill. I always use the same, I use this image, which I think is quite sort of telling, in that you've got Shakespeare and Marlowe, indeed Marlowe and the whole rest of them. The whole rest of them were rock and roll. You know, Green and and, and, and mm. Spencer and, and Beaumont and Fletcher. They were all rock and roll. Most of them died yep. of rock and roll. They died young. They drank too much. They shagged anything that would move. And then there's sure. Shakespeare. Boring. He invested in property and he died in his own bed next to his wife. Everybody wants it to be spectacularly different. You know, who <laughs> knows? Maybe he was bisexual. Who knows? But the truth of the matter is he was a family man who returned to his family home and retired and left his his left his, his uh, a considerable fortune to his daughters. How yes. boring. How if only he'd been Marlowe knifed in so a he, fight. Yeah, so he didn't flay him out. That's exactly. right. Exactly. Yeah. And he's mm -hmm. the only one who didn't. And in all is true, I, I make a point of that. You made mm. it home. You mm. literally explored the universe with your brain, but you made it all the way home. And and mm. I think this is a a, a, a a symptom of the smallness, the pettiness of a part of the human soul is our resentment of those who don't fill up to don't live up to some in my opinion embraceive and an unpleasant expectation of what genius ought to be right. so this is why we worship lennon but people sneer at mccartney for me shakespeare and marlowe are lennon and mccartney i mean right. they even worked right. together at one point mm. one of them is rock and roll bit mean bit tough bit yeah. chippy the other one is hey hey all right everybody let's say you know let's be friends you know yeah. and you know <laughs> thumbs up everybody and i can see shakespeare doing that because frankly Without being, you know, presumptuous again, I see that in myself. Mm. I, I've, I've had a, you know, as we all do, we've all had our trollings, but long before the internet. Um, but a desire to please, a, a, a wanting things to be entertaining, to be, not, you know, to, to I suppose, uh, those, the squeaky hinge gets the, no, the oil. Those who, nothing's ever quite good enough, um, tend to be the ones whose opinion you want, whereas those who want to please, I include myself, um, I don't think I'm remotely a wishy-washy person, and I, and I certainly don't think Paul McCartney, one of the great geniuses of the century, is wishy-washy, but I see, in it, I see in the way people treat him, the way they treat the Bee Gees, the way they treat Queen, a kind of, I say people, I'm talking about the arts mm -hmm. <laughs> critical establishment. Yes. Uh, a, a snobbery which I believe at the time Shakespeare suffered from, from Green's first words... And funnily enough, I think he's suffering from it today. I don't want to overplay this hand, but I, I feel 
I've always felt very strongly about artistic snobbery and about mm. how the idea that there is a certain feeling that if you can amuse an awful lot of people, there must be something wrong with you. I had a, I had a absolute row with Vivian Westwood once. I'm going to drop a huge name here, not Go necessarily on. <laughs> that one, but we were at the Beckham's World Cup party. There was also David and Victoria Beckham were given this. Gosh knows who was there. And I was sat next to Vivian Westwood and she was offering her opinion that basically once art becomes popular, it can no longer be art. Oh, I see. And yep. um, mm -hmm. it was interesting, but I, I find this horrifying um you yeah. know and i was throwing the beetles and indeed the pistols at yeah. her and she was basically mm -hmm. saying yeah at the point at which they got that big it's no longer interesting which i mm. i look there's an of course i'm not arguing that everything good needs to be hugely popular but i strongly argue that being hugely popular doesn't necessarily mean that something lacks the qualities of great art. Yes, and I yes. think Shakespeare and the yeah. Beatles are good enough yeah. examples. I, I rest my case. No, you're. I, I think that's absolutely right. And uh, and in all is true. I, you know, he does have a chip on his shoulder, but I love that he tells Sir Thomas Lucy off and tells him that you know I I worked hard. I'm not just a, a dreamer who sat around you know thinking up crazy plots. I also ran a business. I also ran a theatre company. I also made a lot of money out of that. So uh, and employed a lot of people. And and employed a lot of people. That's right. I um I wrote that speech at Ken's request. It wasn't in the first draft. Right. Ken Ken rang me and said, "I don't want a comedy, and it you really it'll be a bit funny because you'll always be a bit funny, but I want a drama about a man looking at his legacy and mm -hmm. and and his fractured personal relationships, which were clearly sacrificed for success, uh, but a success he shares with his family." Yeah. Um and. He asked me afterwards, can we do something about Shakespeare, the producer? And I think Ken may have, this, oh gosh, I'm sounding awfully like I've got a chip on my shoulder, and I'm really not, mm -hmm. but it's just an element of my my personal Shakespeare. We all invented Shakespeare for ourselves, and, and mine is as I've described. Um, and I remember when Ken first emerged after his rather triumphs and, and this young actor, he yeah. formed a theatre company, Renaissance Theatre Company, which was a commercial theatre company. Right. It wasn't It wasn't subsidised. It wasn't like mm -hmm. the National or the RSC. It wasn't yep. public. And he was castigated for it. Here's a working-class boy, a genuinely mm -hmm. working-class boy yep. from, yep. from Belfast. Belfast, yeah. Being castigated by a phalanx of Guardian readers for doing something so Thatcherite as it was called at the time. It wasn't remotely Thatcherite. He formed a theatre company and, and employed people and managed to, you know, persuade, I don't know, right. somebody to sponsor it. Um, and mm. I think Ken's always felt a little bit of the elements I've been describing, the mm. McCartney, that, you know, the, he's so a bit often outside had, the establishment. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And mm. funnily enough, you know, nobody's got more street, street cred than Ken. Working class Belfast, 1969, you know, he mm. he had to, they, they ran, they came to England and, and, you know, he said, try being a boy with a Belfast accent oh, yeah. in England yeah. in 1970 mm. in an English school as yes. British soldiers are being blown up, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. Um, yeah. Now, here's a man who then went on to form this extraordinary company and actually got an awful lot of shit for it. And mm. and then, funnily enough, 30 or so years later, he said, can you put something in about artist as producer, artist mm -hmm. as worker, artist mm. as somebody who has to make make his stage, his or her stage, make make their world, you know, they've got to, yeah. they want to put a play on first, they've got to find a place, they've got to find a company, they've got to pay the company, they've got to house the horses yeah. Um, yeah. or stable the horses. And yeah, I'm glad you picked up on that speech because mm. it was written at Ken's request and I think that comes from a similar place that I have my Shakespeare railing about, you know, I did it and and what did you do? You basically mm. sat on your ass, Mr. You Lee, sat around, you? yes, yeah. just being wealthy and owning land. Yeah. So, Ben, obviously a big theme in All Is True is grief, the grief that... Uh, that Shakespeare has about the death of his son Hamnet uh, when he was 11 years old, but also his relationship with his daughters. And and uh, and you've mentioned before that uh, a lot of uh, Shakespeare's late work was all about fathers and daughters. So was that a deliberate thing in the, in the film? It's fascinating, isn't it? When you look at some of the plays, they do tell us so much. People are always trying to find Shakespeare the man in his plays, and 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 sometimes it's 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 a fool's errand. But there is, you know, he doesn't really address. Uh, the loss of his son. There's only one famous speech about a, 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 about a, a, a dead child. Mm. In King John, the, the constant speech, yeah. Mm. Ab absolutely. Um, but uh, there are... There are clues, and I think the most the st most startling of all that you know one can take or leave, but I chose to take, 
is that in his late work, he does seem to focus on fathers and daughters a lot. I mean, I mean, really powerful, strong female characters. You've got Lear and three three very strong women, but and obviously Cordelia, a particular, uh, particularly memorably complex character, and of course Goneril and Regan. Then you've also got you know we've got Prospero's um, relationship with his daughter, uh, which is central to the play, and. In it's a bit more of a stretch, but in Winter's Tale, you know, yes, it is again yeah. very much mm-hmm. about the relationship between yeah. a father and a daughter. And of course, Shakespeare yeah. was left with two daughters. Yeah. He was also left with a wife. Now, I'm very certain that he continued to respect his wife because he 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 looked after her. Mm. And you know, people talk about a second maid best bed, but we all know traditionally that was the marriage bed. The yes. best bed was the yeah. guest bed, which I have some fun with. In 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 all is true. Mm. Uh, he he provided for her absolutely, returned to her, and lived his last three years in a house he shared with us. So clearly, there's respect for his wife. Whether there's love, we can't tell. But one thing I do note uh, it was a it was a line actually can cut from all is true because it was he said it was too much an obvious joke but the <laughs> there are very few wives really effective wives in Shakespeare marriages very effective very few effective portraits of a marriage indeed the only the most complex and convincing portrait of a marriage in all of Shakespeare canon is of course the Macbeths great and yeah. uh, <laughs> and so in terms of a portrait of a wife you know that maybe I'm not I don't think it does reflect on his relationship <laughs> with Anne but nonetheless. I think it's interesting that he didn't really cover marriages in any very sympathetic or complex manner very often, and when he did, it could be very questionable. But the daughter-father thing, and of course, here's a man clearly mourning his son. How could he not mourn his son? I mean, anybody who... Lo- I mean, I've thought... I, I, I've got three children. I can't imagine what it would be like to lose one, and it would be no different just because it was in the days of doublet and hose. Humanity, as Shakespeare proves in every line he writes, hasn't changed one jot. Uh, and so clearly that grief must have lived with him and his wife throughout their lives, and yet these daughters are left. And clearly he valued his relationships with his daughters because he took the trouble to draw such strong father-daughter relationships late in life. And I, I just think that's a good clue between the link between Shakespeare the writer and Shakespeare the man, another instance that gives the lie to this unutterable nonsense of a conspiracy theory that oh there must be somebody else it's a, it's just the same as the moonlanders i believe that the the negation of the primacy of evidence is one of the great cancers of the modern age the, and we will good, sacrifice good point. Good point. the entire yeah. sac- we will sacrifice every gain that 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 the enlightenment gave us in law in science and in 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 civilized politics uh, mm-hmm. if we once agree that evidence is no longer required yes. uh, to believe something. And, of course, we've already arrived at that point. The Trump election is a, we is have, a good example. Uh, and and what a sad, sad state of affairs to see that lack of evidence just mm. uh, dangled out there and w- mm. without a care for the consequences. But I have to say I believe I feel the same way about the Shakespeare denialists, a theory that was not even mooted for the first 250 yes. years after his death. Mm-hmm. And yet, in te- you know, I have a... I have, I know, I mean, Sir Derek Jacobi, who I know and respect very much, mm. I consider, you know, a, a friend of sort. But, have you, you know, spoken to him about it? Have oh, he won't have it, you know. And yeah. I, I think there's a certain vanity, a certain petulance amongst certain Shakespeareans. Uh, I mean, I've clashed, clashed swords in, in print with Sir Mark Rylance, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to make it any worse, frankly, because he's clearly a, a brilliant actor. But I do say clearly where I stand in, in an episode yes. of Upstart Crow. Mm. But, um, you know, this is this is a, uh, it, it is a, my father used to say, of course Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare's plays, it was somebody else with the same name, which is about <laughs> as about as far as uh, as you can go with, with such nonsense. The only thing I feel is that not only do we know many facts about Shakespeare's life, but I feel in his work, you can see the resonances, and I've just described yes, one of the most yes. telling ones, which is yeah. the father-daughter thing. Yeah, absolutely. Ben, thank you so much. Now, just before we go, we've got this quick segment in the end called The Final Five. I've got five quick questions for you. Need five quick mm. answers. Here we go. Oh, God. I mean, I don't, yeah. I'm, not, I'm no scholar. <laughs> no, 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 no. It doesn't require scholarship. As an actor, Ben, would you prefer to be the lover or the villain? Um probably the villain i think i might be better my 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 very um 
uh, two-dimensional acting chops might be less exposed in villainy than in the right. in the, in the depths of trying to prove love. Fair enough. And what do you think, Ben, is the most underrated Shakespeare play? I can honestly say I don't think there are any underrated mm. Shakespeare plays. I think there are overrated Shakespeare plays. I really don't see any point doing some of them. Uh, I, I mentioned two gentlemen before. Uh, I, yeah. I could mention one or two others, but I'll probably horrify one listener or another, <laughs> and it's all a matter of taste. Um, sh 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 it, is in, it is impossible to overrate Shakespeare at his best, but it is perfectly possible to overrate him at his not quite best. Mm. And I think perhaps there ought to be a bit more reality about every play in the 37 canon. Yeah, fair enough. Ben, who's your favourite actor that you've never worked with, who you'd love to work with? Oh, gosh. I mean, there are, honest, I'm sorry, but there are just too many. And, and the truth is, I've been so spoiled. I mean, mm. having worked, you know, I mentioned Emma Thompson and Ken Brown, but in terms of comedy, as a comic writer, to have written for Rick Mail, to have mm. written for Rowan Atkinson, mm. Dawn French, Jennifer Saunders, uh, uh, I'm... I made a play in Australia recently, Magda Zabansky, Michael Caton, mm. Deborah Mailman. I, I, and, and forgive me, I could. there are many. Of, I'm, I'm not <laughs> going to list all the incredible talent I've worked with. I believe I have been more fortunate in terms of the actors I've worked with than any writer ever, ever has a right to be. And so I'm going to sit on that great fat laurel and not Brilliant. offer any further wishes. <laughs> Ben, is there a dream Shakespeare role that you absolutely love? Yes, lots of them. Um, I, I mean, I think everyone, as they get older, thinks, you know, could I, could I do Lear? And I, and I, mm. my new, my new crow play is centered around King Lear. Um, I mm. played uh, <laughs> as a kid. I played Lancelot Gobbo in The Merchant oh, yeah. of Venice, and I think mm. I overacted it so much that my father said, "Well, I think they should call." <laughs> The Merchant of Venice, the Lancelot Gobbo show from now on. And I don't think he meant it as a compliment. Um, I, 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 there are too many. Uh, there are too many jewels in Shakespeare for me to choose choose the best. Mm. And Ben, if you weren't a writer, if you weren't in the performing arts, what would you be doing? Uh, I've always thought that I, I would always be an amateur actor and an amateur writer, and I was before I became professional when I was a teenager. Uh, to earn a living, I think I would like to have been a teacher. My father's a teacher, my mother's a teacher, mm. uh, and I'd like to have been a history teacher. I love history. Oh. Uh, that's my my recreation is reading history. I love I love to 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 wallow in the past, and I think I could enjoy very much um, introducing kids to the excitement of 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 the past. So that would be what I would want to do. But I'd still be doing Amdram in the evenings, maybe sure. even a bit of Shakespeare. Sure. Ben, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much for joining me on Speak the Speech. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much. Bell Shakespeare is Australia's national Shakespeare company. We perform in theatres and schools in every state and territory. If you'd like to support our work or to learn more about what we do, please visit bellshakespeare.com.au. Speak the Speech is produced by Bell Shakespeare and edited by Camillo Zanoni. Be sure to follow at Bell Shakespeare on social media and don't forget to subscribe, rate and review the Speak the Speech podcast through your listening platform.